Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, California's housing crisis. And Richard, that is the focus of a recent piece that you did for Defining Ideas. Those of us who have lived in California know exactly what you're talking about when we hear that phrase, but people in the other 49 states may not. So can you just start by giving us an overview of what you mean when you talk about a housing crisis in California? Yes, um, the California housing crisis is not a crisis that exists all throughout California. There are many areas in the heartland, Bakersfield, Fresno, and so forth, which have no houses uh, crisis. But if you start going to certain areas where the uh, uh, climate is extremely attractive, where the seacoast is biting by, where there's a lot of hot business, things have really tightened up. And that would include San Francisco, parts of Oakland, all the way down the peninsula through Palo Alto, where the Hoover Institution is located through um, San Jose, including the town of Mountain View, which I wrote about in that column. And there's also a similar pressure in many areas of Los Angeles and in Orange County. And what's going on here is that the places are booming, so you would think that everything would be just hunky-dory. But it turns out that each of these communities have a kind of welcome stranger attitude, and that used to be called NIMBY, uh, not in my backyard. You could do it in your backyard, but if everybody says it, it doesn't happen at all. And so California has managed to put into place a series of constraints on new construction and new development, which have driven the price of housing through the ceiling, uh, given the demand there, and has resulted in massive sorts of dislocation. And so what you see is, what are the methods that are involved here? Well, one, there's uh, the Coast Front Ordinance, which is extremely chary about the way in which you could build on anything that's near the sea, um, and it turns out the permit process is extremely costly. Then there's the whole system of zoning law, which in California is ratcheted up to a fine art as to what kinds of things could be located in what kinds of uh, places, and these things are very rigid, so they don't change in response to supply and demand. They change in response to a legislative scale, which is extremely slow and awkward in the way in which it works. Most conspicuously in California, there is a permit system that never seems to quit, and it's not just getting your standard building and safety permit. Uh, there are multiple jurisdictions that give multiple permits out to multiple people. My friend Eddie Lazare, who's a very prominent economist who works on urban affairs from Harvard, uh, basically calculated uh, the difficulty in California is not with the land and it's not with the cost of construction in which the whole permitting system takes place. Now, this thing was challenged many, many times in the courts, but I think that we can say with complete confidence, if it turns out that the municipality wants to shut down a private developer, it will win as far as the courts are concerned. And if a private party wants to sue a municipality for not preventing development, that party has a very good chance of winning as well. Uh, so there's no judicial out from this particular system, which means that the politics become fierce. And what you do is you see in places like Mountain View, battle royal over zoning laws, and more recently, rent control statutes. So, Richard, a lot of people will listen to precisely the case that you just laid out here, and they'll say, hey, you don't need to worry about it. We've got fixes for these housing costs. We'll implement rent control. We'll put mandates on developers to build affordable housing. What do you make of suggestions like that? 
Well, what happens is they help short-term incumbents for the short term, but long term, they're all disasters. So if you look at Mountain View, by a fairly close vote, they passed a rent control ordinance. And what they said with the ordinance was surely true. It allows teachers, nurses, and truck drivers to stay inside the city where they can work. But by the same token, uh, this ordinance prevents other teachers, other nurses, and other truck drivers from coming in. If it turns out that the outsiders actually want to bid more for the properties than the insiders are prepared to do, there's at least a loose presumption that the higher value goes to the outsider. And so what you're doing is you're protecting local interests, but you're sapping the economy of people whom it needs a great deal. Uh, The long-term dynamics are even more complicated because these housing programs on rent control can always expand. Uh, The Mountain View program only applies to housing built before 1995, uh, but there's nothing which says that you can't switch it around and extend it to housing built before 2005 in another couple of years if things don't start to work well. Uh, There is no way that you can solve a housing shortage by rent control because it doesn't bring new market units in there. The way in which you keep prices down is to allow new construction to take place. And Mountain View, like so many other communities, including San Jose, which is right next door, are very tough on the zoning situation, so things don't happen. What they then do is they say, well, we'll require you to build more housing and we'll require some of it to be affordable. And that was recently before the California Supreme Court in a case involving San Jose. And they said it's perfectly okay for a town to put those kinds of limitations on. But what you have to understand is these are a form of price control. Um, You're allowed to charge whatever you want on the market rate units, but if you have 20 or 25% of the units which are subject to fairly severe controls, uh, the market will not let you charge all the money you need on these other particular units. Units, and so nothing will get built at all. And when the case brought by the construction companies against San Jose was in the California Supreme Court about um, 18 months ago, uh, the developers had some pretty good studies which indicated the pace of new construction in a city like San Jose slowed to a crawl the moment the affordable housing mandates were starting to be put into place. And so what you can say is there is a general economic theory which says that price controls always retard innovation. The reason why they are particularly attractive in the rent control situation is they are not just simply a price control which says that a landlord can't charge more than a certain amount. They are always accompanied with a rule which says that the sitting tenants always get the benefit of that particular situation. And so the housing dynamic takes place and you don't get the new construction and it turns out that you uh, keep sitting tenants there. So what's going to happen is eventually these towns will suffer seriously. Businesses like Google will decide they're going to have to move either all their part of their location somewhere else to service their people or they're going to have to have buses from San Francisco down to get people into their offices, creating traffic and other kinds of problems. This is a no situation. The only way in which you can work these things is you have to have much more free entry. Anybody who owns a plot of land which is relatively large, relatively compact, relatively um, free of other entanglements should be allowed to develop it whatever way he or she sees fit. And the only constraint should be those relating to parking and traffic. But the whole effort to try and engineer this thing from the center is a kind of uh, socialist form of behavior that doesn't work in housing in the United States any more than it works anywhere else in the world including Venezuela. Richard, let's be clear here about what we are and aren't talking about. Your prescription here is opening up housing markets, peeling back restrictions. Um, But knowing you as I do, I also know that you're not advocating for a system of absolutely no regulation either. So give us a sense of what sensible housing regulation looks like. 
Well, I mean, first of all, you can't have a no regulation system with housing because the adjacencies are so important. So let's figure out the ones that you always need. Certainly, you have to have anti-nuisance type regulations. You can't allow somebody to open up a factory which pollutes massively in any kind of a neighborhood. You have to shut that down. There's not a single developer who's not perfectly happy to live with those kinds of constraints because the first person you pollute when you create a nuisance is yourself. So there's all sorts of essentially natural built-in constraints on this, no objection. So that's the first one. Uh, The second one that you surely have to worry about is the question of how it is the private space integrates with the public space. Uh, That is, you cannot have a system in which somebody builds these huge structures and makes no provision for off-site parking. But it's generally pretty easy to put those kinds of things in there, and you don't see too many people objecting to that kind of stuff as well. Uh, For the rest of it, uh, there are many ways in which these people who build units will self-regulate themselves. Uh, The Modern Condominium Association, the Modern Gated Community Association, these are remarkably sophisticated operations. They have governance boards, they have bylaws, they have vested rights, they have governance structures. And what they do, in effect, is to try to figure out what kinds of things you want to deal with, use, appearance, noise at night, and all the rest of that stuff. So if you put those three things into place, then generally speaking, the rest of this, which says, no, you know, in this particular location, we think it's better commercial than residential. Well, that's wrong. Uh, So to give you but one terrible rigidity associated with uh, zoning, if you look in New York City where the zoning is better than it is in many other places, this is what you see. You see on the ground floor and in New York City below ground, you see essentially retail space. So you you come into Best Buy and the first thing you see is a first floor store and an escalator that goes straight down. And then above that, what you do is you often have some office space. Then above that, you have some hotel space. And above that, you can have yourself some residences. So you have four different uses located in the same particular neighborhood designed for compatibility and each one getting this level of space that's best for their use. If you start having a traditional zoning system which says commercial here, apartment there, residential in the other place, what you're doing is you're preventing all of these devices from taking place. And when you do that, what you do is you reduce the total value of any particular side of land, which only drives up the cost because it reduces the supply. And these people who run these systems, uh, they are just completely hostile to these kinds of mixed uses most of the time. If you also look in a place like Palo Alto, you could go north of Foothill Avenue, and there's all sorts of vacant land there, uh, generally low level of utilization and so forth. And so the question is, are you better off with having X acres of empty parkland, which people use only rarely, or do you want to take some fraction of that and put it into further development so as to ease the problem? And vacant land regulation is a peculiarly difficult kind of situation because it's very difficult to get any kind of legal protection on this stuff. And yet, if you have these things as self-contained communities and gave developers a large degree of largesse, then you can have gated communities where they will build the roads and they will make sure that they have the off-street park and they will make sure that they don't have all of the zoning operations or rather all of the noise and conflict operations in question. So private enterprise can do this much better than a government can do. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you look at the situation there, there are pitched battles because there are many businesses who are absolutely fiercely opposed to the rent control and the zoning restrictions. The rent control prevents them from getting new workers to come into the neighborhood and the zoning restrictions make it impossible for them to basically acquire a new shop next door, open up a branch uh, to a particular bank or another restaurant. And so between the two of these things, everything is just red tape. And it 
the incumbents like this, the political system tends to support it, the judicial system won't attack it, and everybody says you got to do something about it, but given the absolute tangle, veto positions are very easy to come by, development positions are very hard to acquire. We're talking here about issue areas that we usually think of as taking place mostly at the state and, and local level. However, Richard, you do say in your piece for Defining Ideas that the conservative majority on the Supreme Court that could emerge from a Trump administration might hold the key to undoing some of the pathologies that are besetting housing in California. Explain what you mean by that. Well, this is Hail Mary full of grace. Uh, but So, I mean, we have to keep it in perspective. But if you look at the California Supreme Court, this is straight Democratic court. And every time there is a challenge to its various land use regulations, uh, these challenges are unanimously rebuffed under a very low, what we call rational basis test, where essentially if you could find any plausible explanation, any conceivable reason for doing something, the courts will not interfere with legislative judgments, notwithstanding that everybody knows that there's a massive breakdown in the political process. At the United States Supreme Court, that is still pretty much the view. Uh, But there's been a couple of cases in which the United States Supreme Court has said that what the California Supreme Court has required of developers is inappropriate. Now, all you need to do to do this is to switch the rules starting with Euclid. That's the first of the zoning cases from 1926 to the Penn Central case in 1978 to the point where they don't use rational basis calculation, but they require the government to show a good and substantial reasons based upon health or safety for putting restrictions in question. So to give you an idea of how badly all of this stuff can work, uh, the Euclid case said here's a perfectly good uh, 68-acre plot of land, which is ideal for industrial development, and the government chopped it up into a series of inconsistent zones uh, next to one another and reduced the value of the plot, it was alleged, by about 85%, and the Supreme Court Judge Sutherland, a conservative, saying this is fine with us. It may not be a nuisance, but it's close enough. Whenever you have a coherent plot of land, the last thing you want to do is to break it up by public ordinances and create boundary inconsistencies. The case is an absolute disaster, and it's such a strong case against the government regulation that once it's sustained, it turns out that virtually every other zoning ordinance will do so. And then when you cut to the New York case in 1978, what the city did is it decided it didn't want you to build a building above the um, Grand Central Terminal. And what they could have done is condemn the air rights. But no, what they said is, uh, since you have the ground, everything above that is just simply an optional extra, and we don't have to compensate you at all, because your only reasonable investment-backed expectations are in the business that you're operating, not in building the tower. So they managed to disregard rule after rule of financial financial valuation. They take the state system of property rights and completely reject it. And so what they again give is the state an enormous hold over the way in which various kinds of developments could take place. If you could get somebody to rethink either of those two cases, since the takings clause binds the state, it could transform what happens there. But you need to get a lot more movement on the Supreme Court than you've had. But I've been working this battle for a long time. Everybody tells me it's hopeless. Everybody says don't worry about it. And then you start to see the consequences in places like San Francisco and in San Jose, in New York City with the stabilization rules, and you realize that something dramatic really has to be done. So last question. Let's envision the scenario where none of this change happens, where the status quo wins out. Um, None of the changes that you've described here emerge, and California housing markets stay more or less the same. 
as they are right now. What does that mean, Richard, for the future of the state of California? It means it loses electoral votes, uh, and this will happen in several ways. One is that new businesses will be frightfully reluctant to enter into a state where they're going to have to fight with this land stuff. And secondly, businesses will start to move out of the state. It won't be that Google will leave entirely, but some of its operations will conveniently move to Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon, Texas, or wherever. Uh, there's no way that you can keep these businesses at this price. The situation to understand is you're trying to create competitive markets in housing and in other kinds of land uses without creating nu nuisances and other kinds of noxious behaviors. The political process will never get you to that because it gives huge preferences to people who are already located in the territories, and they will skew the rules in order to make sure that it's welcome stranger. It's only if you get the courts to come in there with a slightly larger view that you can change them. This is not to say, and I'll end on this note, that everybody in the state of California is crazy on that, because just as though there's a NIMBY movement, not in my back, Backyard. Now it turns out many people putting together a YIMBY movement, yes, in my backyard, because they realize the way in which this situation is going to hurt them. So it's going to be a battle of political forces, and my prediction is that the changes will not take place at a material level, and then there will be a slow exodus from the state, and there will be other centers like Texas, which will grow much more rapidly. To give you but one comparison, you want to get a building permit in the state of California in one of these sensitive areas, count on several years. You want to do it in Austin, Texas, where they have a shortage of public roads, you could get it in five weeks. I mean, this is such an absolute radical difference in style. And until you change the political culture in California, change the legal system, it's going to be in a state of steady decline. And, you know, uh, the very, very rich will disguise this, but most people, in effect, will see the situation and the U-Haul market going out will be a lot stronger than the U-Haul market coming in. All right. My thanks, as always, to Richard Epstein and to you, our listeners. Remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, the Libertarian by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.